here we go. First question. I have a dear couple of friends who are the most kind-hearted, loving, and serving people I know. They're trying to reach out to an atheist neighbor, but she makes a lot of demands on them, and she has a son who also has a lot of needs that they are sensitive to and want to help with. How do we as Christians set boundaries with people that may harm our family in some way when they make unhealthy demands or requests? Does the verse in Matthew 7, 6 apply to this situation? Do not give that which is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before pigs for they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So there you go. That's for whoever wants to answer that. Yeah. So this was one of the ones that came in during the week, so we have an advantage on this. So... um, so let's read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 7. I'll say a little bit about that. And then Lori's going to talk a little bit about just kind of setting boundaries and that kind of thing. So uh, Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, says, Judge not that you be not judged. Um, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I mean, it's literally saying don't condemn people. There's other verses in the New Testament that tells us to judge in the sense of discerning what's right and wrong. So you got to keep those two things uh, in balance. Uh, but he, he says, uh, if we're going to discern, um, you know, we've got to do it with grace. He says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your, own, in your, in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? In other words, you know, deal with their own sin first. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck uh, from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it's not saying that we never confront someone else. It's just saying we do it with grace after, after first dealing with your own sin. But it, he, very, verse 6 very clearly tells us we have to be discerning. It says, do not give what's holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and, and tear you in pieces. So, um, you know, there, there are occasions, it would, this, it would seem like Jesus is saying here, where we're trying to minister to people and they're not ready or willing to receive that ministry. And so, you know, I think we have to use discernment in, in drawing those kind of lines. Uh, now, uh, you know, this does not mean that we should never sacrifice in order to share the gospel, in order to help people. If you're going to minister to people, you're going to sacrifice sometimes. Uh, you know, there's sometimes there's a price to be uh, paid. You know, not everybody's going to like you. It's not always going to go well. It's not always going to go smoothly. Uh, you know, sometimes people may, um, I don't know, you know, I'm a pastor. Sometimes I think people think pastors are pinatas or something, you know, just, just, just whack this. You know, people are going to take shots at you sometimes. So that doesn't mean that, you know, the first time somebody doesn't like something we do, we run and just uh, ignore people. But you can't go to an extreme on the other side. And, um, you know, to me, if you're trying to help someone and, like, you're carrying the weight of what they're doing, and probably at that point you become an enabler, and it's probably counterproductive at, at that point. And I think in every situation you probably need, you know, prayer and scripture and godly counsel just to, you know, kind of have discernment to do that. So, Lori, why don't you take it from there? Well, I mean, some of the things you said, I think discernment is key. Um, You know, there's all these one another statements in the Bible where, you know, we're supposed to be kind to one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. Um, But there is sometimes a line where 
it actually can be counterproductive or detrimental to a person to continue doing things for them that, you know, maybe Jesus or just to be healthy or calling them to do for themselves. You know, when, when our kids were little, there's always this point with your kids where, you know, they're learning to roll over or they're learning to do something. And, you know, there's a part of you that as they're struggling, you want to kind of reach in and sort of, you know, tip them over a little bit, right, <laughs> and just help them. But, but what we realize is, is part of that struggle is part of what needs to happen for them to develop strength and, and to meet milestones and, and become autonomous and, and, you know, be a person that's independent. And if we're constantly rushing in with our kids to do everything for them, whether it's a developmental milestone or whether it's something emotional or something like that, they never develop the skills they need to be able to function and then also take care of and minister to other people. So I think the same truth applies here in that we have to, like Jimmy said, we can get to the point where we're enabling and then people aren't going to change because they don't have to. You know, why change if life is comfortable? And so sometimes people have to get enough uncomfortable to want to change. And we don't want to just be there stopping that process. Um, because it, then I think we realize when we're the one, you know, when, when sometimes we can step back and say, am I the one doing all the work here? And, and that's maybe a good question and a guideline to ask ourselves. Well, I think maybe an example would be if you're trying to help someone who has an addiction, sometimes mm -hmm. you have to let that person come to the end of him or yeah. herself and, mm -hmm. and be broken before mm -hmm. anything can actually be done. I mean, I think when it comes to sharing the gospel, though, that as long as someone's willing to have an honest conversation with mm -hmm. you, uh, not, not a fight, but if they're, they're willing to come back and talk about it more, even if it's sometimes inconvenient, that we probably ought to keep that conversation going. Well, I think in the Bible, there's different examples of when, you know, someone was lost, you know, that Jesus told different parables based on different circumstances. And one was, you know, a sheep wanders off and, you know, out of kind of ignorance <laughs> or bliss or whatever, and, and the, the, the shepherd goes looking for them. You know, there's another with the prodigal son, though, where the prodigal son decides and wants to leave and rejects, and it actually is through the process of the father letting him go and finding himself at the end of himself that he finally then realizes, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. And we don't want to cut off that process in people's lives, you know, with a well-meaning intention. But we also have to ask ourselves sometimes is, you know, am I trying to make myself feel good or, <laughs> you know, get a need met here by feeling like, you know, it's my job to fix and rescue every person and not not leaving that to Jesus. So I think we sometimes have to ask ourselves. Well, and I think particularly, like, if you have a wayward adult child, mm -hmm. if you're stepping in in a way where it's kind of like you're absorbing God's discipline mm -hmm. instead of them taking God's discipline, yeah. you're really probably getting in the way of the yeah. process of what God is doing mm -hmm. to bring that uh, person back to himself. Yeah. Okay. So this one, this question kind of, um, it, it's kind of a 
flows out of that question. It's a little bit different uh, and from a different side of it. Um, this question is, at what time do you need to start pouring into people instead of being poured into yourself? Like, how do you know when that's when that time has come? Uh, and I don't know any more about that's. It's just that simple question. And I, um, you know, I think that's kind of a good question, though. How do we know when it's when there's and when there's enough in us that we can start pointing to other people too? How do, how do you know that? The moment you get saved. <laughs> I mean, really, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Um, there's somebody you can minister to. You can, at that moment, start going back to your lost friends and family. Mm-hmm. And you may not know a whole lot, but I think of the story of the man uh, born blind from birth in John chapter 9. And, um, you know, Jesus did a miracle in him. And then, you know, he ends up putting his faith in Christ where it's not just a a physical miracle of healing, but it's a spiritual miracle of salvation. And the Pharisees start giving him and his parents uh, a hard time. And, you know, they start throwing their uh, theological stuff at him. He's like, I don't know, but I, I, when, I know I was blind and now I see. Uh, so if you're saved, you can at least tell somebody I was blind, uh, but now I see. And so really, I mean, I think when you read the New Testament, um, you know, we're all to be kind of just in an ongoing state of being ministered to and ministering to others. And we're never too immature to be in that state or we're never too mature uh, to be in, in, in that state. That, that's a, just an ongoing need for every believer. And, you know, as you grow, there's probably a greater variety of people that you can minister to, greater ways that you can minister. But when you get saved, the Holy Spirit puts a spiritual gift inside of you. You have a testimony and you can do something. And if you want to grow, you need to be doing something. Well, and it's a constant process. You know, you're constantly being poured into through God's word, through, you know, fellowship, through your own worship. And then, you know, that's not meant to just sit there. It's meant to then flow out of you to others. And so anytime that one of those things are happening and the other's not, we're out of balance. And so, I mean, it's, it's always that process of kind of soaking up and then wringing it out, so to speak. And, you know, I think that's just the rhythm of how we have to live our lives um, because, you know, if we're constantly pouring out at some point, that's where people get burnout or some people even completely walk away <coughs> from church or, you know, from the Bible and just say, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I think that that just shows us that, you know, that it has to be a constant process of both things happening. Okay. Are y'all going to let Ryan talk to you? Well, yeah. You have to answer the next three questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, if Scripture is without error and God is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, etc., how should we view the scenario where God wants to destroy the Israelites for their disobedience and Moses changes his mind? Is Moses more wise than God in this story and brings him back from his fiery rage? Does this story line up with Jesus' command to forgive our brother 70 times 7? I am glad we have the Old Testament <laughs> scholar with us. So, I was about to say, I think this needs a pastoral response. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so uh, that's, a, that's a really good question and a tough question. This is, I wish that I could just give you a simple answer to this mm-hmm. one. Uh, but uh, some of these questions are tough because they're, they're just tough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, 
uh, you know, scripture does not have errors in it. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. There, there's no reason that God would be in a position that he would need to change his mind. Is that, is that what I'm understanding correctly? However, we do have a passage such as uh, the one that's referred to in Exodus where, where God is ready to destroy the Israelites and, and Moses kind of talks him down, maybe, is a, is a way to put it. Um, the, the, the answer that I would give to this is that although God is all-knowing, and he has a plan, and he knows what's going to happen, and God has a will that's going to be accomplished uh, no matter what. God chooses to interact with us relationally, and God chooses to respond to us. Uh, that, that's why God tells us to pray, and he says that prayer is powerful and effective, because although God knows everything and can do everything and has certain things that he's determined to do no matter what, uh, God also chooses to interact with, with his children. And so when we pray to God, it's not that we change God's mind, uh, mm -hmm. but God has determined in his perfect will to respond to our prayers. Mm -hmm. And in Exodus, he responded to Moses' prayer or Moses' plea on behalf of, uh, of the Israelites. So it's not so much a, that there's any fault in God's plan or God's knowledge, but it's, it's a demonstration of God's uh, desire to relate to us and to interact with us. Uh, not for us to be a robot or him to be a robot, uh, but, but for us to speak with him and, and then for him to respond to us and us to respond to him. Uh, and, and this is a part of God's goodness, I think. Uh, but the pastor may have uh, something he'd like to add to that. <laughs> um, you're the guy with a PhD from Yale. I mean, why would I want to add to one of your answers? At Yale, they don't teach me about this kind of thing. Uh, okay. Um, now, I would just say that, um, you know, God in his sovereignty, Scripture teaches us that at times he chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And um, I think that would be one of those occasions. And, um, you know, Scripture uses something called anthropomorphic language, you know, where he gives kind of human characteristics to God just so we can understand God. And so I don't think, you know, God was in any sense literally changing his mind here. Uh, you know, God had just already chosen to work in response to the intercession of Moses, and this is the way it's revealed to us that, that that's happening. best way to get a good habit started? You just posted a sermon series on that one. So. Okay, that, that's a really good practical question. The, the, the best way to get a good habit started is to start doing it. Um, um, start, uh, start easy, start simple, start small. Uh, I, w I would say, um, you know, I, I would really recommend, I, I did, you know, when I preached this series, if you're a reader, uh, you know, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, if you're not a reader, you don't feel like you have that much time, go on YouTube and put in something like Craig Rochelle interviews James Clear, and you can get the, the essence of that book in 30, 40 minutes, however long it was, I don't remember exactly. And, um, you know, really just kind of take those suggestions. Um, but, you know, I, I would say as a Christian, you know, just to pray and ask God to, to, to help you with it. 
You may want to talk to a friend or somebody for accountability and encouragement. But I, I would say whatever, you know, that, that habit is, um, whether it's, say it's reading the Bible or maybe it's, it's working out, um, you know, make it, you know, make it, make it as easy as you can, uh, you know, plan, prepare. That's what clear, clear would say. Make it easy, make it obvious. Like if, uh, you're going to plan on going to the gym the next morning, you know, go ahead and lay your workout stuff out, pack your bag the night before, or, uh, you know, if it's to start reading the Bible, you know, go on you version and, uh, you know, sign up for one of the plans. Maybe you want to get somebody to sign up with you, but, you know, don't start by trying to read the gospel of Matthew in a day, you know, start five minutes a day or don't, you know, don't try to run a 5k your first weekend, you know, uh, I mean, in, in, in that book, he, he tell, he gives an example of a, of a guy who's lost a ton of weight and the way he started was just like putting on running shoes. Uh, he, he gives an, a, an example of another guy. The way he started was like, he drove to the gym then he went into the gym, then he did a minute, and just kind of built from there. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, start small, uh, just try to be consistent. Uh, remember, there's compounding interest. Um, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you lose a half a pound a month, that doesn't sound like a lot, but over 10 years, that's 60 pounds. So, you know, there's always compounding interest for good and habits, good habits. There's compounding interest for bad and, and, and bad habits. So think long-term. You know, I'd encourage you to just kind of play the scenario out in your mind of, okay, if I do this, this is what's going to happen. Uh, if I don't do this, this is what's going to happen because we reap what we sow. With the current cultural craze and ever-growing list, of gender pronouns, how do we respond biblically, especially when someone insists on being called something other than he or she? Good question for a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that we have to respond based on a Christian worldview. Um, everything kind of goes back to that. Um, the, the misconception here is, is that, um, you know, we've kind of come to a place where each individual's truth is supposed to carry the weight of actual truth. And just imagine that. Imagine if we kind of, just everyone in this room, if everyone in this room had kind of a different individual truth, Who's, who's, who gets to say what is really true? And so it starts getting really complicated really fast when we approach it from that way, when we start letting each individual determine what truth is, you know, based on how they feel on that particular day or that particular season of their life. You're not anchored to anything that way. And so what we have to predetermine is what are we going to be anchored to? what is truth, and, and we see that truth corresponds with reality, and we also see that truth ultimately is based on God and his word, and that's where we land, because we have to have somewhere to decide that, that we have that anchor, 
And so in doing that, you know, we're, we can be gentle, we can speak truth in love, but we can also decide that we're not going to compromise and, and begin saying that what God has said has changed. And that, you know, the common conception now is, well, it's, it's if I think this is true or I want this to be true, then that gets to be true. And that's not how it's supposed to work, and that's not in reality how it does work. Is God has said something, some things, and before he even laid the foundation of the earth, he has determined certain things. He's determined, um, you know, that there are male and female, and he's determined different um, roles and different ways that the world works, and that's truth. And so we, we don't do anything that affirms anything that is not true just because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or we don't want to make somebody mad. Um, and so I think that we just kind of predetermine that we're, you know, that we speak that truth in love. And, and always with that, there are going to be people that get angry and there's going to be people that, you know, reject us because they're ultimately rejecting God's word. And um, that's just the way it's going to be. But I think we don't compromise on that. And, and to be honest... You know, 20, 25 years ago, we classified people that saw themselves differently than who they were created to be. That was a disorder. That was someone that was not grounded in reality and was mentally unstable. And we've changed definitions, but just because we've changed a, de a definition doesn't mean that that actual thing has changed. And so we just have to land back there, and we have to know that. And increasingly, we're going to, you know, receive more and more pushback and more and more opposition to that. But we have to just decide, you know, going into things that we're not going to compromise God's word. We're going to stand on that truth, and that's going to be our anchor. I do, but it's a little bit of a, a turn. So, so if you mm -hmm. have something to say that's more directly related, then go ahead. Um, yeah, there's a couple things I think I want to say. Um, so some of you will remember last summer, I did a sermon series called True Justice in an Unjust World. And uh, Judge Sloan has convinced me to turn this into a book. So I'm slowly but surely working on this. And I'm going to preach a message uh, this summer that will become another chapter in the book about love and justice from Romans chapter 13. And just want to, want to read a couple verses of scripture here. And Paul writes, oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so, what he's saying there, the loving thing to do is the helpful thing to do, but the helpful thing to do is the right thing to do. So you can't separate true love from actual justice and morality. In, in, in other words, if you are not sharing the truth of God with someone, that, by God's definition, is an unloving thing to do. 
Now, the Bible says to speak the truth in love, so there's a right way and a wrong way uh, to share truth. But to me, you know, whatever name someone wants to call themselves as far as like a, a proper name, you know, some names are used for both genders, so whatever. But to me, if, if you're using a pronoun other than what someone, who someone is, at that point, you're kind of entering into the lie with them. And, and I don't see how that's a, a, a loving thing to do. Whether or not they feel it's loving or not, it's not defines what defines what's love. God defines what's love. And he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So in other words, we do the right thing in the right way, with the right motive, that's when we're actually doing the loving thing. And that applies in a lot of different issues. But, um, you know, for Christians, this is uh, such a huge issue. Uh, you know, the Equality Act has passed the House. Um, you know, hopefully it will be a difficult go in the Senate because it takes 60 votes. But, um, you know, that... You know, Al Mohler says if that passes, religious liberty is dead in, in our nation. And um, so this, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, this isn't the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who loved us and came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. But as I think Lori did a great job of pointing out, this is really a fruit issue. You know, the root issue is just the nature of reality, the nature of truth. Um, the, the, the philosophical term is epistemology. How do you know something? Where does knowledge come from? How do you know, uh, you know, what's truth, what's real, what's right, what, what's wrong? And, you know, it, basically, if everyone gets to have their own truth, anything goes. And the, the plus at the end of LBGTQ, um, the plus at the end of that, eventually just, it, it, it could be anything. Because at, at some point, if everything's relative, how do you say anything's right or wrong? Just to add, add one thing to, to what uh, both of you have so excellently stated, uh, I think one of the root problems, if not the root problem, is that for all of us, our preferred pronouns are I and me, right? <laughs> we're, we're really focused mm -hmm. on ourselves and, mm -hmm. and what works for uh, us individually. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's and that doesn't just relate to the the, the gender issue. That's that's mm -hmm. everything in life, mm -hmm. uh, and and our own selfishness is is our own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. Okay, this question is specifically for Ryan. How does Scripture, like Numbers, point to Jesus? I know lineage is important, but why so many Numbers? <laughs> <laughs> This is someone who hates math. Lori, did you submit this question? <laughs> this is a big one. There have been books, you know, entire books, multiple volumes uh, written on this topic, and, and Christians disagree widely on this. You do have the passage at the, at the end of Luke 
where, where the two men are on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is talking with them and he opens their, the scriptures to them and they're able to see how all the scriptures, the law, the prophets, all of this uh, points to Jesus. And then, then I turn back myself and read the Old Testament. Don't boil a goat kid in its mother's <laughs> milk. And, and how does that point to Jesus? And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the answer is for me, and again, Christians uh, differ on this, but there are different ways that an Old Testament passage can point to Christ. There can be a prophecy that very directly speaks mm-hmm. uh, to Christ. In Isaiah 11, uh, for instance, you have prophecy that, that uh, although the Davidic monarchy, the, the kingship of David, has been cut off, that one day it would be restored by this ideal king. And that's a prophecy that, that a Messiah is going to come. Uh, and Jesus fulfills that in a very direct way. Uh, you have other things in the Bible that point to Christ more by implication. So you have the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, which may not speak directly to Christ, but that does anticipate the, 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 the sacrifice that Christ would become himself and that Christ would, would offer as our high priest. And so that doesn't necessarily prophesy or predict Christ, but it does anticipate Christ. Uh, you could look at the book of, of Judges and, and look at the, the different leaders uh, in, in the book of Judges and how God uses these leaders to deliver Israel. And, and, and we can say, well, that also anticipates Christ in a sense, and that Christ is the ultimate uh, person sent by God to deliver uh, Israel, to deliver God's people. Uh, and so there are various ways that different parts of the Bible can point to Christ. Now, the numbers, uh, are we talking about, I wonder if we're talking about just numbers like genealogies and, and censuses, or are we talking about the book of numbers? And, and there's really interesting stuff in the book of numbers. You have this uh, prophecy of, of this uh, uh, prophet, mm-hmm. not even an Israelite prophet named Balaam. Uh, in, in Numbers 24, I think, 22 to 24, uh, who, who anticipates the star that will rise. And that seems to be, be uh, understood uh, by early Christians as a reference to Christ. Um, in the book of Numbers, we see uh, examples of, of people sinning and, and being judged by God. And Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, this is an example for us, how, how we've been saved by Christ, but that doesn't mean that we can sin and expect not to suffer consequences to that. So it anticipates the church and, and Christ's ministry in the church and our relationship to Christ in the New Testament. Uh, so there are lots of different passages in the Old Testament, different kinds of information in the Old Testament, and these all relate to Christ, but in different ways. Our society teaches us to be ourselves, be happy, and to accept each other, but the Bible teaches us to not fall into the world's teachings. What is a good way to keep ourselves towards God and not fall into the world? I would say Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of uh, service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing uh, of your mind. And so, uh, you know, he, he starts that passage and, and, and really, Romans 12 begins the practical application section of Romans. And it's based on the doctrinal foundation that he's laid. And so when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies uh, of God, um, that's kind of almost like a shorthand for everything he said in the book of Romans about God has, what God has done for us in Christ through the cross. Uh, that, you know, by the mercy of God expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus and us trusting him, <laughs> 
you know, we're forgiven, we're declared righteous in the sight of God, uh, we're, we're made new, uh, you know, we're a new person, new life, the, the Holy Spirit is, is in us. And so, uh, you know, the, the way to not, you know, get sucked into the world is, you know, to put our focus on Christ, to, to set our mind on things above, you know, to fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, the author and the finisher of our faith, because, you know, the idea of sanctification, of spiritual growth, is it's Christ living in us. It's Christ living through us. You know, it's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not us, you know, trying really hard to not be like the world and, and, and us, you know, trying really hard to be like Jesus. It's us looking to Christ, trusting him, depending on him, surrendering to him, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, where Jesus, who lives in us by his spirit, is, you know, exercising more and more control over us and, and changing us from the inside out. That's how we live out the gospel. We're, uh, you know, we're transformed as, as, by the work of, finished work of Christ as much as we're, you know, initially saved by the finished work of Christ. But, you know, the, the second verse there in Romans 12 says, you know, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed, have a metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. And so, you know, the, the battle is always in our mind. So if we want to change our life, we change our thinking. Well, how do we renew our minds? Well, we renew our minds by, uh, you know, intaking Scripture. Jesus said, uh, John 8, 31, 32, that if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and, and the truth shall set you free. So as we, uh, you know, set our minds on Christ, as we get into the word of God, and that reshapes our thinking, and we begin to think differently, then out of that, we can live differently. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's some things, you know, we can do, obviously, you know, the Bible says he who walks with the wise will become wise, the companion of fools will be destroyed, so who we hang around with is important, uh, you know, we can be wise to avoid tempting situations and that kind of thing, and, and so, you know, that's part of it, you know, Romans 13, give no provision for the flesh, but it says, but first, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, so it's a matter of a changed heart, a, a changed mind, uh, and that comes through you know, surrendering to Christ, being filled with the Spirit, absorbing, taking in His truth so that the way that we think is being changed. And then out of that, the way that we live is going to change. And we're both going to have the discernment to discern um, God's truth from worldly thinking and the power then to actually do what's right. But it's inside out. It's not outside in. Okay, this, this uh, question is, I was baptized years ago. Do I need to be baptized again? I guess that's a pastoral question. Uh, I guess the answer <laughs> is, it depends. Um, it, the, these would be the, 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 the questions. Um, you know, were you genuinely saved? Were you genuinely a follower of Christ? when you were baptized. You know, baptism is a symbol. Um, it, so it, it's, there's nothing about baptism that washes our sins away or makes us right with God. 
You know, what washes our sins away is the finished work of Christ on the cross Mm -hmm. when we place our trust in him. But then, you know, the Bible teaches us the baptism is how we symbolize, how we publicly confess our faith in Christ. Um, you know, it's, it's a symbol of new life. You know, died to sin, been raised up to walk in the newness of life in Christ. That's what's being symbolized by going under the water, coming up out of the water. So first question is, were you actually, uh, were you saved? Did you know what you were doing? Then I guess the second question would be, um, is, you know, how were you baptized? Now, you know, churches disagree on this, but we think the Bible is very clear that the only acceptable biblical mode of baptism is by full immersion. And, and there's three reasons we, we believe that, see that in Scripture. One is, is the meaning of the word. Uh, you know, the, the word baptize, uh, the Greek word baptizo, it means to make fully wed. It means to take and something and place it fully into another uh, object or medium. Uh, it's, it's the New Testament example uh, you know, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. I've baptized people in rivers and lakes and never sprinkled anybody in, in, a, in a river or a, a, a lake. Um, you know, you see Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and they, it says they went down into uh, the, the water. Uh, even on, you know, the day of Pentecost, some people say, well, how did they have enough, you know, water uh, to baptize 3,000 people? Well, you know, in Jerusalem, there's something called mikvaios, which were basically kind of like public baths, you know, where they could do the ceremonies of purification, those kind of things. So there, there was water available. But then the third reason would just be, you know, the biblical meaning of it. Like if you go to Romans chapter 6, for example, there's no water in Romans chapter 6. Uh, it's talking about our spiritual position in Christ, that we died with him, we were raised with him. But how else do you symbolize that other than in the water, you go into the water, death, burial, coming up out of the water is, is, is resurrection. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, we're baptized into the body of Christ. We're placed into uh, the body uh, of, of Christ. And, and so, you know, baptism symbolizes those things. You know, the, the sprinkle and baptize are not like synonyms. They're not interchangeable words biblically. Sprinkling's never used in the context of baptism. Now, it's a secondary issue in the sense of, uh, say, our Methodist brothers and sisters who sprinkle. I'm not going to say they're not Christians if they're trusting in Christ alone. But I do think they're wrong on this issue because, I mean, I don't see any other way to, to argue this uh, biblically. If, if you were baptized as a uh, sprinkled or whatever as a baby, you didn't know what was going on. This has nothing to do with, with your faith. I would say you need to be rebaptized. So I would say if you weren't saved when you were baptized, if you weren't baptized by immersion, you should have believer's baptism by immersion. Now, if sometimes this is a common question we get. Somebody says, like, I've rededicated my life to Christ. I want to get baptized again. We say no, because there's no biblical precedent for that. Um, baptism is a symbol of salvation. It's not a symbol of discipleship. And that's why we think uh, that um, uh, while we, you know, talk to people, try to do what we can to make sure their conversion is genuine, uh, you know, we don't wait years for people to prove it by their fruit before we baptize them because we don't see that picture in the Bible. It's a picture of salvation. Have we baptized some people who probably weren't converted? I'm sure we have, and not intentionally. We've tried to avoid that, but that's always going to happen. There's the parable of the sower in, in the Bible, and either one or two out of the four there, depending on how you interpret it, were genuine believers. And so, um, 
Which again, it depends, and that's maybe hopefully some of the nuances of it. Um, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Using this scripture, um, and they even say possibly taking, taken out of context, I'm not sure. How do we know that our thoughts and perceptions are in line with the Lord's, and that the things that we feel are important in life are of any significance in life at all. What do you want to answer? Yeah. What was the passage again? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And can you repeat the question? I was looking it up and, and gotcha. repeat the last it part says, of the question. How do we know that our thoughts and perceptions are in line with the Lord's and the things that we feel are important in life are of any significance in life at all. Okay, thank you, thank you. I was, I was thinking about the passage, trying to remember what the context of it was until I didn't hear the, the, the question. Yeah, that's, what, a, what a wonderful passage. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. That should be an encouragement to us, right? I can understand why it would be frightening to us because what, what if our thoughts are so corrupt that we're, we're, we're just completely misled, which is, you know, we're human beings and we're sinful and that's not impossible. In the context of the passage here, uh, God is talking about forgiving the wicked. And, and when he says mm -hmm. his thoughts are higher than our, our, our thoughts, what he's saying is, I'm willing to forgive people. Uh, this is something that humans have a really hard time doing, but God is willing to do that. And so this has more to do with the character of God than with something intellectual or, or, or something along those lines. Um, so uh, is it possible that we could just be completely misguided? Uh, in theory, yes. I, I think it is that, that we, we can be. Uh, and, and I don't remember if I mentioned this one of the last times I was here. I talk about this a lot when I'm preaching and stuff. But, but one of the things that scares me the most in the Bible is when I look at people in the Bible who seem to be sincere, but they are so wrong. Uh, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, for, for example, and he calls them hypocrites, the Pharisees probably didn't think, you know what? I'm going to be a hypocrite today. It's, it's, most people are not bad intentionally. Uh, most people are not wrong intentionally. I mean, most of us, uh, if we realize we're wrong, then we correct our opinion. Uh, and, and so in theory, uh, we can be completely misguided. And this goes back to what, what Jimmy was saying earlier about uh, um, how to make sure that we're not buying into what the world is telling us, but, mm -hmm. but living according to the way that God tells us. And, and spending time in, in, in reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, spending time in, in fellowship as part of a church community, as part of a small group, these are all guards that'll, that'll help us avoid being deceived. On the other hand, sometimes we can have communities that can be deceived. Mm -hmm. I'm a Southern Baptist. Uh, but there was a time when Southern Baptists, they were simply on the wrong side of the racism issue or the mm -hmm. slavery issue. And so mm -hmm. communities can be deceived. So even that's not going to give us 100% mm -hmm. uh, immunity. So maybe I, I can talk in terms of immunity. I think we all understand that <laughs> these days. It's not going to give us 100% uh, immunity to these sorts of things. But uh, I, I suppose uh, that being conscious of that, that should cause us all to have humility um, because although I hope I'm not completely deceived, uh, it's to be expected that w when I get to heaven, uh, I'm going to learn that I was wrong about some things that I thought 
uh, during my time here and was wrong about some of the things that, that I did, that I believe, that I sincerely believe that I was right about. So we need to be uh, very humble about that as well and not quite as, as, as judgmental. Now, now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't confront people with, with truth, but, but there's a spirit uh, that someone can, can do that sort of thing with where, where they're assuming that, that, where I can assume that I'm right and this other person is wrong in such a way that I forget that I'm wrong at times as well. Uh, and so I have an arrogant or unloving spirit uh, with which I confront someone. I'm, I'm uh, trying to remove a speck from someone else's eye when I have a plank <laughs> in my own eye. Uh, and so these are all things that we have to guard against. And, and what Jesus says in that case is, well, don't worry about planks and other, or don't worry about specks in other people's <laughs> eyes. What he says is, first, make sure that you've removed the, the plank from your own eye, uh, and then you'll be in a position to, uh, to, to help someone else remove the speck from, from theirs. And so I feel like I've rambled on about numerous things now. Uh, pray, be humble, uh, read your Bible, uh, be involved in... A, a Christian community, and uh, and and trust that God is going to forgive whatever is still messed up in your mind <laughs> after all of that. Okay, um, are the charismatic gifts for t for today, or have they ceased? <laughs> okay, l l let me try to answer this quickly. In English, um, please. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can't speak in tongues? <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, you know, we, we use some terminology sometimes around here, and, and, and let me repeat it because it's important. You know, there's, there's primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, tertiary doctrine. Primary is like the fundamentals of the faith, essentials of the gospel, uh, you know, salvation, those kind of things. You know, non-negotiable. If you deny this, you're not saved, you're a heretic, that kind of thing. Uh, secondary doctrine would be stuff that is important, but it's, it's not like essential to the gospel. Um, you know, maybe a church, a church could have a definite viewpoint on it and say, well, you have to believe this to be a member, but it doesn't, shouldn't be divisive in the wider body of Christ. Shouldn't say somebody's not a Christian. Like the, the answer about baptism would fall under there. Uh, or us, you know, believing in, uh, you know, plurality of elders instead of a solo pastor. Us believing having, you know, male pastors, being complementary, and some stuff like that would be examples. You know, tertiary uh, doctrine would be, like, stuff, this is kind of matters of opinion. There, there shouldn't be any, you know, division at all over this, agree to disagree. You know, it could be details about, you know, second coming, end times, uh, style of worship, uh, you know, those kind of things. Uh, the, the issue with uh, cessationism or continuationism, whether or not the, the gifts of the Spirit are still in effect today, uh, is at best secondary. It might even be tertiary. I think it's somewhere on the, on the border of those two. Uh, I mean, at True Life, even people in, in leadership, we would have different opinions or convictions over that issue. Personally, I don't believe that they have ceased. Other people believe uh, that, that, that they have. Um, and the, I think the biggest issue is it's not something to fight or, or divide over. It's caused a lot of unnecessary harm within the body of Christ. Uh, to get into the nuances of that debate, we don't have time to do that. Um, just if you want to 
explore it further. I have a website that has some of my particular, my personal teaching materials on it. It's jimmyinman.com, just my name.com. And under, I think it's probably teaching resources, uh, there's a paper I wrote in seminary about, I don't, if I remember the title of it, it would be helpful. Is speaking in tongues biblical or something like, there's nothing about speaking in tongues. Um, you know, if, if you want to look that up, that's a viewpoint on it. If you got questions, you can get in touch with me later. I think it's probably the best way to answer it for the time that we have at the moment. So every time a question starts with in the Old Testament, I just like look at Ryan. I don't even know. And, and I silently praise God that he's here. <laughs> so in the Old Testament, God instituted several feasts for his people to keep. What are some examples of how those point to and, and or were fulfilled in Christ? And also along with that, um, it's, he instituted those for his people. And his people were the Israelites. Is it something that we still should be honoring in any way today and kind of elaborate on? It's kind of a two-point question. Sure. Those are really good questions. And uh, let me think here. The, the, probably the most obvious feast in the Old Testament, uh, the one that gets the most attention in the Old Testament, but then the one that most obviously points toward Christ is the Passover. Uh, and and you, you, that commemorates uh, in the Old Testament uh, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt uh, the night that that God uh, killed all of the firstborn in Egypt, but passed over the homes of the Israelites and spared them, and this is how God uh, finally, uh, or I shouldn't say God finally, but God uh, God uh, convinced the Egyptians finally uh, to uh, to let Israel go, and this was an incredible act of deliverance on on uh, on. Uh, God's part for, for the uh, Israelites. Uh, in the Gospel of John, we read uh, that Jesus was sacrificed. His death took place at the time when the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. And, and so this is uh, Jesus sort of fulfilling, uh, not fulfilling like a prophecy being fulfilled, but, but Jesus uh, being sort of like a, an even better uh, iteration of what happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is, is very, very much like our Passover lamb who accomplished God's deliverance for us. Uh, the book of Hebrews compares Jesus as high priest to the priest on the Day of Atonement, another festival. That's the one day of the year that the high priest was able to enter God's presence and atone for the sins of Israel. And, and according to Hebrews, uh, that's what Jesus does for us as our high priest offering his own blood. So those are a couple of the festivals and how they might point toward Christ. Now, are we supposed to observe those today as Christians? Uh, in multiple places in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, Paul seems to say that for Christians, um, there are certain things in the Old Testament that we do not observe today. At least we don't observe them the way that they did in the Old Testament. So we don't uh, keep kosher. We, it's okay to eat bacon. Do you all like bacon? I, I do. It's, it's okay. That, that's, uh, that's what the New Testament says. It's okay for you to like bacon. Uh, maybe we shouldn't like it as much as we do sometimes, but, but, but that's okay. Uh, the, uh, the New Testament also says that festivals are, are something that, if you want to observe them, that's great. And certainly Jewish Christians uh, in the time of the New Testament, they would have been more inclined to observe these festivals than Gentile Christians. Uh, but according to, to Paul uh, in multiple passages in, in the New Testament, uh, those festivals aren't something that are obligatory for Christians. Now, may it be helpful, I, I know of Christians who 
who have observed Passover seders, uh, perhaps in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It can be confusing, though, because the Lord's Supper can, uh, is something we need to kind of understand in its own right. Uh, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I don't think that those festivals are obligatory for, for Christians. And our final question. Um, our time has brought us to that. Uh, we probably could keep going. Um, this question is, would you please share the gospel for anyone listening who may have never heard the greatest news in the world? <laughs> that is a great way to end. And, um, and, and, you know, we didn't manufacture any of these questions. So, um, you know, the, the word gospel in the Bible, if you're not familiar with that word, I mean, it, it just simply means good news. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, who, remember, was, you know, he was a, a zealous Jew, and he was a rabid opponent of uh, early Christianity until he said, you know, he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead on the Damascus Road. But he said, you know, and he shares his testimony, Acts 22, Acts 26, he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 15. But he also says, this is what I received. This is, it was an early creed that was passed down. This was the, the, the Christian testimony that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means some of what Dr. Stokes has just been telling us, that you know, the Messiah was prophesied, was pictured in the Old Testament. Jesus is that Messiah. That you know, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was fulfilled in Christ on the cross, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the dead, and then he starts naming off the witnesses to uh, that resurrection. And it says, you know, we place our faith in him that we're forgiven of our sins. And so the, the gospel is that uh, God created us. He, he made us in his image. He made us to know him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. They rebelled against God. We inherited a sin nature from them. We choose to sin. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. Uh, the wages of sin is death. Our sin separates us from God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And Isaiah says our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus, uh, the eternal God, left heaven, came to earth as a man, he lived the perfect, obedient life that we failed to live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He reaped what we sowed. He, the, the, the wages of sin is death. He died the death that we have earned by our sin in our place, bearing our sins, absorbing the wrath of God. And so, you know, on the cross, a great exchange takes place that, you know, our sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness. And the Bible tells us that the way that we receive that is to recognize our sinfulness and to repent of our sins, which means, you know, we're, we're genuinely sorry and we're turning from our sin. We're turning to God. We know there's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation, nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous. The Bible says it's not by works. It's by grace. It's the gift of God. And we 
place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for us, who rose from the dead. And the Bible says we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, you can in faith call on his name and he'll forgive you, he'll connect you again to God. He'll give you the gift of his spirit. He'll make you new on the inside, give you a new heart where you can live a new life out of that. And so, you know, we would encourage you if that's, new, if that's you and God's speaking to you, you know, to call on the name of Jesus, uh, to ask for his forgiveness, ask him to come into your life. If you have questions about that, if you're here in the room, come see one of us or talk to somebody you know. Or, uh, you know, if you're online, connect with, uh, let one of the hosts uh, know. Or you can text a TLC decision to 94,000. Or, you know, if there's got a question, prayer request, some other way we can minister to you. If you're interested in, in baptism, uh, let us know. And, uh, you know, we'd love to connect with you to help you take that step that you uh, need to take. And, um, you know, with that, why don't we close in prayer?